Well, thanks for coming. Uh, I, I just had to this thought. We were in the in the service and singing just as I am. If you could have like a drone camera kind of sail over the church, you could play spot the Baptist or spot the cradle Baptist because those are the ones like me who didn't have a hymnal because you knew all the words because you'd sung that 8,000 times growing up during the invitation. Um, so that's, that, that just kind of made me chuckle to myself because that's my bad sense of humor. So uh, the, the broader theme, you know what, I've got handouts. So let me go ahead and just, there's just a couple. Um, it's one page. I think some people are walking up to the front too. Really? <laughs> Terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Andrew down front, kind of rocking back and forth, waiting. Um, so the, the broader theme, last week with Psalms, this week with Job, is, is this idea of vulnerability. Um, that is, is something of a, of a kind of a cultural buzzword. And so look last week at where vulnerability is very much a positive thing. While we can, while we can affirm vulnerability completely in a Christian context, um, in, in terms of trust and confidence in the sovereignty of God, uh, and knowing that um, that 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 the, the the vulnerability that takes place on a vertical level between us and God is is secure in Christ. Um, Psalm 88 being sort of a foreshadowing or a precursor. Uh, the voice of David in that case is the voice of the suffering Savior, and so we can we can rely a great deal on that and, and have some confidence in that, which enables us to speak to God. Um, in a very open and honest way, even even a little bit as as, as the psalmist does in, in that chapter, kind of pointing our finger back at God, kind of up to a point, which we'll kind of get into today. And so uh, that was that was where we were were last week. For those of you who are here, any any thoughts that may have occurred in the course of the week? I don't really expect there to have been any. That's okay. I'm not I'm not looking for anything, but just in the event. All right, today is a lead into Job, so a couple of um, couple of things here. So a couple of quotes, um, a link to a Christianity Today article that I'll talk about in a minute. And I mentioned um, a band called The National last week, just a handful of songs that um, uh, are um, that I think lyrically kind of kind of speak to some of these themes. Um, not all of the ly- lyrics are kid-friendly, so just kind of proceed with caution, but it's not, um, not that bad all at the same time. So a couple of quotes that I ran across. Um, the first one is from a movie called The Last Days of Disco that came out in the late 90s. Um, if you've heard... Um, I know um, all of the, m- the members of the Zoll family have referenced um, that movie and other movies by the director, a guy named Whit Stillman, a handful of times. Um, real quickly, the movie literally is about life in New York during the late 70s, early 80s, as disco is kind of on its way out. Uh, it's about a group of young professionals. Um, in fact, there's some nice little dialogue about whether or not being a yuppie is a good thing. Uh, the consensus among the characters was that it was a good thing to be young and upwardly mobile and professional, uh, and uh, that's what they're aiming for. But about a bunch of uh, relatively recent college graduates in New York City getting their feet wet in publishing and advertising, and their social life revolves around uh, one particular disco club where they hang out. You know it's the last days of disco, though, because they all dress in a very button-down, guys are always wearing crew neck sweaters and, and, and khakis. I mean, they, very, they look like they went to a New England college and a New England prep school. Um, they don't kind of do disco fashion when they go out at night. They're there um, um, dressed in a little bit more of a toned-down manner. And one of the characters um, works at this nightclub kind of as a manager, and um, he comes to find out that the owner of the club is um, laundering money through the club. At, at the very least, he's not paying taxes. It's hinted that he may be running drugs or something like that through, through there. Um, that is kind of that's a side 
piece of the story. Mostly it's just all kind of character stuff. Well, he decides to, um, instead of take the stand against his boss, um, mainly just because he's wimping out, there's no kind of um, criminal loyalty here. He just, he, he's just too afraid to do it. So he and one of the other characters uh, hop, um, hop in a taxi and are heading to JFK to, uh, to, to flee to Spain to avoid having to, to sit on the stand and, and, um, and witness for the prosecution. And so it leads to this kind of long discussion in the, in the, in the, in the cab on the way uh, about the state of their lives. And this character's name is Dez, says, says this in a moment of panic. He says, you know that Shakespearean admonition to thine own self be true? It's premised on the idea that thine own self is something pretty good, being true to which is commendable. But what if thine own self is not so good? What if it's pretty bad? Would it be better in that case not to be true to thine own self? See, that's my situation. And so he's, he's juggling something here. Um, he, he, he realizes he is, he's in a, in, in, in a really big fix. Um, and he ends up, I think the U.S. Marshals catch him at the airport. And basically he's just, he gets to live his life, but he's, he's forced basically to testify. And, and it kind of goes on from there. And kind of the flip side of that is a, a quote from the very first episode of, of the TV show Sopranos. Tony Soprano is, um, is, is having a back and forth with his therapist and um, telling, him, telling her that he's got therapy figured out. He doesn't need any help. And he says, let me tell you something. Nowadays, everybody's got to go to shrinks and counselors and go on Sally, Jesse, or Raphael and talk about their problems. What happened to Gary Cooper, the strong, silent type? That was an American. He wasn't in touch with his feelings. He just did what he had to do. See, what they didn't know was once they got Gary Cooper in touch with his feelings, that they wouldn't be able to shut him up. And then it's dysfunction this and dysfunction that. And I'm not going to read the rest. Apparently that last word is a really vulgar Italian word. So I apologize um, if you know Italian and you know what that means because uh, there we go. So, um, so a, couple of, a couple of things kind of back, um, bouncing back and forth there. I think the initial sentiment that, um, that the character from the movie is dealing with in terms of being true to your own self, I think that that's, that's a good place to be in terms of having a handle, if, if we want to go there, having a handle on the idea that whatever you are at your core is really, really problematic and that getting too in touch with that and being true to that can, can, be, can be a bad thing. It's not, it's not something that you want to do. You, uh, maybe you, you don't want to be true to thine own self. And I think that relates to kind of a broader cultural conversation about vulnerability because uh, at times, at times, the voice there is that um, being vulnerable with yourself and being open and honest with yourself is inherently good. Not that it's a good first step, but that it in and of itself is a means, um, not as a means to an end, but, but as the end itself, that, that is a good thing. And so, um, on the other hand, the, the, the sentiment um, exhibited by, by Tony Soprano was that, um, that there is something bad with kind of letting it all hang out. That something in there is not good. Now, this is a guy coming from a point himself of being very prideful and saying, well, you shouldn't do that. You should, you should keep that to yourself. Maybe keep it among, uh, among you know, one or two people you know, but, but don't put that out there. And, and that maybe is, is something that, that we might want to resist a, a little bit more. But I think there are kind of a couple of competing notions here uh, of what it means to be vulnerable and why, uh, why it's a good thing, why it's a bad thing that, um, that, that, we, that we engage in that. So as an introduction, any did it? Did any of that stir up anything? Well, 
Well, lastly, before before jumping into Job, there was an, a really interesting article on um, on Christianity today a little while back. Um, there's a link to it. Um, by the way, if you read that link, it's kind of d- totally okay to read for for adults, but it does kind of deal with some. Um, it references some some other books that have dealt with the issue of vulnerability in terms of personal life experience, and it is a little graphic. So. Um, proceed with caution, but it was in Christianity Today. I mean, it's not anything bad. Um, but there's a blog on the website called Hermeneutics, which is all about um, her. Uh, it's all about um, kind of theology from a, from a feminine perspective. It's, it's a really cute title. Um, and the, the point of the, the blog post was basically that all vulnerability is not necessarily a good thing. That there are times in which, um, devoid of context, when speakers and writers can be vulnerable in such a way that um, that it's, it's almost off-putting to, to an audience, whether they are reading or whether they're here listening. She uses the example of being at a conference with some Christian leaders in Chicago, and somebody gets up and they're speaking about creativity, and they, in a very brief 20-minute talk, spend half the time detailing some very, very awful experiences in terms of um, abuse uh, and addiction, uh, with no in no context to do it, and she said, you know, this person sat down, and everybody in the audience is very, very uncomfortable, and they almost feel as though, despite the fact that he was the one bearing his soul, we all felt like we kind of walked in on him. Mm-hmm. And so, without that kind of context, that it became became really problematic. Um, and I'm not sure who the author is. It's probably just a freelance writer who works who does some stuff for Christianity Today. But she made the point: vulnerability via memoirs, blog posts, social media. Um, social media is, I think, particularly timely. Public talks and sermons has rarely seen better days. The more personal details are shared, the more painful or embarrassing those details are, the more we celebrate the sharer, labeling them brave and courageous. In a political or church context where leaders have lied to us or let us down, we are suspicious about what we hear from authorities with positional power. Instead, we grant the most authority those who wield confessional power to the people who tell it like it is. She goes on to say, though, that the problem with all of this when vulnerability is unfettered by boundaries, it, be, it can become another way to earn spiritual points. It can feel like perf- a performance of humility, as self-aware as a peacock surveying its own tail. None of this is good for our leaders or the people they lead. So she, she's talking a little bit about a leadership standpoint, but I think the, the deeper point about pride, and that's where vulnerability kind of turned. Last week we talked about where vulnerability was such a good thing. I want to turn on its head a little bit and say, well, this is where it's potentially bad, is that... Um, when our vulnerability, when our openness and our honestness uh, becomes undergirded by, um, by pride, where we are, we're putting ourselves out there for the purpose of being seen, of being heard. Um, not, in a, not in an act of creativity, not in an act of authority. Maybe you know, certainly a, a minister stepping in the pulpit has a certain level of authority in that moment, but, um, but in an attempt to kind of wield something of ourselves uh, and perhaps even kind of with a, with a mind towards Joe's sermon this morning, wield some element of control over the situation. That even though, um, and we talked about this last week, we've been acted upon perhaps in a, in a negative way, we're going to control that situation by, by using our vulnerability as something to, to kind of put out there and to earn, um, as this author noted, kind of confessional power. And there was a, there was a really sharp, um, if you want look to look at the article, there's a really sharp comment that just a reader left um, and, and usually comment threads are just pretty pretty terrible. I mean, if you want if you want to to hate humanity and possibly hate yourself, read the comments on al.com. I mean, I'm, I, I understand 
the concept of internet conversation and even anonymous internet conversation because maybe you've just got something you're into and you don't have anybody in your life you can talk to about it. So go on the internet and talk about Legos or <laughs> you know baseball cards or, or, or what. I mean that that's okay and maybe it's even a, to- a place to politely express strong opinions. But you know comment threads can be really problematic. But somebody that comment in in, th- in this piece he said you know it seems to me that our intense need for for horizontal vulnerability is due to a lack of vertical vulnerability between us and God. Certainly in the case, because the article gets going on um, the comedian Lena Dunham, um, she's got that TV show Girls on HBO, that I know very little about, just kind of know it from a distance, but she's known for being um, vulnerable in terms of what she says and the fact that she um, is very vulnerable in presenting her body on the TV show, um, which again, not seen, don't know, um, y'all can tell me about that. Um, but you know, the, the, the comment kind of went on and said, you know, for those who are without Christ, what, what we're experiencing kind of as, as a cultural moment is maybe a sense that lacking that vulnerability between God and yourself, you intensely seek it between yourself and other people. Um, which, again, that's, that's not altogether a bad thing. It's, it's very much maybe a half-truth, but devoid of that context between you and God. You're, you're looking for something, again, Joe's sermon was really timely in that, you're looking for something horizontally that you're not going to get uh, absent a vertical connection between you and God, of course, um, ultimately revealed uh, in the person and work uh, of Jesus. So before hopping to Job, anything that might have struck anybody? All right. It yeah. seems like you hear people defending like Lena Dunham, just expressing anything about yourself and everything about yourself is just like you're saying in here Right. Well, I noticed that a while back too um, in stand-up comedy. I remember, Chris Rock would always be always be real big and say, "Well, I'm I'm just telling it like it is." Which I mean, sometimes that was really funny. Other times, well, maybe just maybe it didn't need to be said. I mean, you could, and we we joked about this last week. I mean, you could be sitting at the Thanksgiving table, and the food might be terrible. Um, not at any of our family's house. Um, but the food might be bad, and you could be telling the truth by saying, oh, these peas are awful. I mean, that doesn't need to be said. And that's, and that's, a, that's, a, that's on one hand, a, a simultaneously a mundane and extreme example, because it, it's, it's mundane in the sense that it's everyday. It's extreme in the sense that nobody with any sense about them would do it. But, yeah, but yeah I mean, I think that, that sense is kind of overblown a little bit. Schneiders? Well, I, I mean, it makes me think of my mom once said to me, I just don't want there ever to be anything between us. I always want us to say exactly how we feel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> true. And, and I thought, you know, but the, the thing is, is, you know, sometimes I'm in mourning over the fact that she's aging and she doesn't want to acknowledge that. Um, you know, and sometimes there are things that, you know, I don't want her to tell me and I don't, I don't think right. she would want me to say to her, and that's okay, and right. I'm okay with that. Like, I want to enjoy our company, right. and I think sometimes this desire for vulnerability is is associated with an immediate closeness and and therefore an acceptance of what it is, but I think sometimes being overly vulnerable, you know, can actually rip people apart right. um, and, and can be really negative. Yeah. What were you going to say? I was going to talk about Miley Cyrus. Okay, go for it. I don't know, I was just thinking it out loud and through reflection of what you're saying, but she's kind of a public experiment in terms Mm -hmm. of all that you're talking about. Right. Like, she's taking it to the absolute extreme. And recently she posed nude, Mm -hmm. and I saw somebody put on Instagram 
or no, Twitter. Uh, Miley Cyrus has no more clothes to take off. Right. <laughs> like she can't right. push the, she's pushed the extreme right. so far, and she's only 22 years old. Like she can't go, how can she go any further? Right, right, yeah. <laughs> and so there's almost a little bit of, a little bit of backlash, but there is also the embrace that some people like you're talking about. Right. Um, it's like mixed reviews with Miley Cyrus. Right. Well, eventually that, that whole, it all kinds of run, runs out of steam, you know, eventually. I, I was thinking about this in terms of, um, one of the things I love about the way we, we worship at the Advent, um, in terms of having liturgical boundaries, and, um, and a little bit of the, the, our kind of traditional music, I think this would also be true uh, at the 5 o'clock service, and I'm not saying this because Matt's here. If you've been, I, seriously, if you've been in a service, though, where, it opens up as though you're kind of at a rock concert or the very emotive worship, especially among those who are quote unquote leading it. Maybe if you're in that moment, it, it's fine. If you're not, though, that's, it's just too much, um, especially if you're in kind of that subculture of Christianity where kind of worship lyrics are really, really expressive. Whereas the silence of more liturgical worship does allow for, it almost encourages that verticality that we, that we talk about. Um, and it, it doesn't give you kind of the crushing, you know, I mean, the, the desperation that is so apparent in, in some modern forms of Christianity that um, I, I kind of juxtapose the two. And that's not to, to label any particular churches or groups of churches or anything like that, but just that, that kind of back and forth. And if you've kind of experienced both, I think the two can really become, really become apparent. All right, so in Job, we all know the story about, about Job. Job's a righteous man. Um, you know, Satan kind of mouths off to God, and God said, all right, do what you want to do to Job. I'll, I'll, I will allow you control over that situation, which there's a whole lot of a whole lot to discuss there. Um, and so a lot of bad things happen to Job a couple of different times. And that's all the all that action happens very very early in the book in the first couple of chapters. And by uh, by the third chapter of Job, Job and his friends take turns for 29 chapters going back and forth about how how terrible life is for Job how God shouldn't have done this to Job, how Job was basically a pretty good guy, this is not right. Very, I mean, it, 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 you know, without context, I mean, it reads similarly to, in a similar fashion to what we saw in Psalm 88, a little bit of, you know, God, why have you done this? Why am I here? Um, but something's a little bit off in Job's telling of it. I mean, you can, you just get the, it's kind of set up even from the beginning to know that, you know, when you hear him say this, you know you just can't quite trust it. And so he goes on and on and on. And, and this is something that we would, I think, again, devoid of some context, we would probably, I mean, if this person were in our small group, we would probably think, yeah, I mean, share that with us. This is good. And, and it would be. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying don't do that. But, um, but it, it, I think the fact that it does just go on for chapter after chapter after chapter, Job and his three friends taking turns, does in in fact um, suggest that that they that they um, that they do that they go on for too long um, that they kind of kind of overplay their hand a little bit uh, even looking here in the ESV kind of the the little the, the little headings of each chapter to kind of tell you what the action is um, you know there, there's a little bit about Job's repenting but for the most part it's a lot of Job saying you know my case is just here and his his three friends basically backing him up on that to one degree or another. Um, and so, when when we know that what Job is say that Job is basically trying to defend his case, 
I think that's where the whole notion of pride comes in. That in all, for all of his for all of his openness, for all of his honesty, what he gets what he gets very where he trips over in this area, where all of a sudden he, he's at a place of pride, where he's defending himself against God instead of coming before God hum, humbly and, and with a sense of repentance. He comes to God with an attitude of pride, basically saying, not why, not just why did you let this happen, but you shouldn't have let this happen to me, and here's why. And that is is, is a very, very tricky place to be. Um, and so you get 29, 29 chapters of that. And then in 32, uh, we have this, a, a new character kind of walks on stage, Elihu, young guy, waits his turn. He's very humble. He's very patient. He kind of comes out of nowhere which kind of struck me as similar to you know, Jesus coming out of Bethlehem, David kind of coming out of nowhere. Again, just this, this voice of um, voice of reason. That's a bad way of putting it. But here comes this, this deeply important voice in Scripture um, for just a couple of chapters. And it's not a recurring character, but it's this one time kind of comes out of nowhere um, and, and says something very, very important. And he says, I'm going to be respectful. I'm younger than, than you guys. I've not lived as much life. I've not seen as much. I don't even know as much. But, oh, by the way, you're wrong. And, and he details in, um, again, in very poetic language, very lengthy for a couple of chapters. He rebukes Job. He, um, he, he, he develops an argument for why God is just, uh, that, um, that God is, is I, I just fall back and say, like, God is in control, like it's a, you know, a memento, a cracker barrel. But, um, but establishing that... Uh, that Job is is not the the subject here. He is he is the object. He is the one that's being acted upon. He's not in he he. It's, you just use our language. He's not in charge of the situation. Um, certainly, use theological language. Job's not sovereign, but it, instead it's God that's sovereign. And ultimately, in thirty seven, Elihu closes out by declaring. Um, and I'm not just reading off the little, the titles here in the ESV, but he declares God's majesty, God God's awesomeness. Um, that, that God is in fact greater and, and, and uh, both more powerful and also more wonderful than, than whatever else it is that, that Job may have to complain about. And then as 37 lines down, um, kind of a storm develops, and then here comes the voice of God. And this is not, um, this is, uh, you know, Mark Golly wrote that book, Jesus Mean and Wild, that Gil's talked about. Um, this, is, this is God the Father being mean and wild here. This is not nice warm, grandfatherly God. I mean, this is Old Testament God with a long beard and the long hair and the big muscles. Um, see at Calvin and Hobbes where, where, where Calvin was building a world and it was, you know, Calvin was the gods. Like he's, he's, he's one of the old gods and, and Bill Watterson drew this, this uh, vision of God that kind of looked like um, a more scary version of Ariel's father from Little Mermaid. I mean, he's got like a, not like a pitchfork, but like a big tall scepter and he's, he's about ready to, 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 to um, smite his enemies. And that's kind of the voice of that's the voice of the Lord here. I mean, who who is this that darkens counsel by words and knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you know you know if you have if you have understanding. Um, this is this is not a warm chat. This is like when when one of our kids, not the really little one, but one of the other two, need need a talking to, and we basically have to kind of get face to face. You know, don't cover your eyes, don't bury your head in your pillow or your blanket. Look at me. I'm talking to you. And we say it in a real calm, gentle voice, you know. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's always it's always just laced with love, right? Of course. And but that that's what God does too. He basically says, "Look at me," you know. Um, you know, dress for action like a man. Um, 
got to be very, very direct here. And, and what, he's, what he's saying is for, and, and God, go, God talks for quite a while, um, uh, all through 38, all through 39, and just a litany of questions. I mean, the, the great line about, you know, did you raise Leviathan out of the sea? Did you tell the waves where they could go and could not go? Um, this beautiful foreshadowing of Christ in, in, in verse 9 of chapter 39. Um, is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Um, I'd never seen that before. I'd never heard anybody mention that in Christmas, at Christmas or Advent before. That's just incredible. Um, in, in saying, you know, I, I'm, in, I'm so in control of everything that happens in the world that, that, that you know, I'll not only make the ox serve me, he's going to lie down and sleep beside me as a baby. Um, this goes on for two chapters to the point where in, in chapter 40, Job basically says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once, and I will not answer further twice, but will, and I will not answer twice, but will proceed no further. And God's not done with him. He goes on in chapter 40 to, to finish this out. And, and again, the questions kind of keep coming. Um, and, and, you know, you know um, I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? Uh, and basically, you know, tells him, look around at creation. At 41, he's when he talks about Leviathan. You know, can you draw Leviathan with a fish hook? Press down his tongue with a cord. Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? It's almost funny because, I mean, you know, you get like, you know, will you put a rope in his nose? And maybe you get to see something, well, you know, I did catch that big fish one time. And then he goes on next. Oh, but, okay, so if you do that, then can you do the next thing too? And this is just constant, constant battering. And at the end, what Job's left with is he, he has no more complaint. You know, he, he has nothing else to say. And at the end of in chapter 42, Job, Job answers the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to you. I have heard of you by the learning of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And so I think to, to jump into it, I think the takeaway for ultimate vulnerability between us and God has to be repentance. And I think that's a hard word. It, it's, it's hard for me. Um, you know, the, 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 the verses that keep repeating themselves about uh, where, where God says to Job, you know, do, how can you understand this? I, I don't like that. Um, most days, I, I don't like being told that there are things about God that I can't know, that I can't understand. Um, I'm not good at it, but I love apologetics. I, I mean, I think Christians ought to engage, on, I'll just use this word, intellectually with their faith. I think that's valuable. Um, but I think what we see here is, I mean, that, that itself runs out of steam at some point. And, and there is a point when, like Job, saying, you know what, this is, this is something above me. Um, and, and in that moment of, of true vulnerability, that's when you, you, do your, you, you run out of steam and say, you know, I have no answers here. I have no defense. Because in that defense, ultimately, it's going to be your pride. And so you can be extremely vulnerable in making your defense uh, before God and before other people. But for it to, I think for it to ultimately hit home on a, on a, on a, on a vertical level between you and God, you have to come to that place that Job comes to where in the end you, you throw your hands up or, or, or what have you and, and you, you come to a place of repentance and saying, you know what, I've, I've gone too far 
And so I'm, I'm going to stop talking now and, and repent for, for whatever it may be, certainly at the very least for pride. It's probably a good default to always repent of is pride. And, um, and then kind of go from there. What's the definition of vulnerability? I mean, no, no defense. Is there, is there, if you're making a defense for yourself, right. you're not, that's not vulnerability. Yeah. And I, I think, and I think that's the, the distinction between what we see so much of, not certainly outside of the church, but even inside of the church, is um, is a lot. You know, it it can very quickly become a lot of look at me, look look how messed up I am, um, look at all the mistakes I've made. Uh, and again, I mean that's that's such a half truth because you're you know that is still engaging something that that is has the potential to be very 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 good and very very helpful. But if it doesn't result in, um, if, if, it, if, if, if your pride is somehow not undercut, then you, you kind of like the peacock strutting its wings, um, to reference that, that piece in the Flannery O'Connor class from, from before Christmas. I mean, you, there, there's that pride in there that, that ultimately is, is the thing that needs to be yanked out of the way. It makes me think, too, of like the vulnerability of, you know, if Job had gone and said, I love you, God, period. I mean, chapter three, where Job you know, laments even being born. I mean, we could, in, in biblical terms of mourning with those who mourn. I mean, we could we could read that, and, and that's that's a good lament in the middle of maybe it's just kind of day to day mundane difficulties, or certainly when when bad things happen. That that's that's all right. But yeah, as he he keeps going. I mean, he he runs that play one too many times, and and he gets he gets stuck in the mud really fast. Uh, and because of his because of his pride, which we all I mean, which we all have, he's unable to see, uh, absent this voice of this little nobody who kind of sweeps into the picture there in, in chapter 32. Um, he, he's unable to see what what what's going on. He's clouded by by pride and by self justification, and, and doesn't doesn't see his own sin for what it is. Um, that even absent all the tragedies that have befallen him, he's still a prideful man. Uh, and and the. Uh, you know, the book closes out by saying that God restores his fortunes. Um, and again, for those of us who don't believe in any kind of prosperity gospel, it's a, it's a difficult passage because God restores his material possessions. I mean, his, his land, his, 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 um, his livestock, uh, I believe he's, he's, he's restored like a new relationship. I mean, all this stuff kind of comes into being. Um, I don't think we're promised that kind of restoration, but we are promised um, 
kind of harkening back again to Christmas and the idea of God and sinners reconciled, we're certainly promised restoration between us and God. And if there's restoration there, there's certainly hope that there may be restoration here. And so whatever that leads to, and that may, you know, that may lead to a lot. It may lead to just little victories, but um, you know, little bits of, 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 of you know, moments of peace and happiness uh, and joy, but certainly it leads to restoration between here and there. And that is, uh, that's nothing, that's, that's of, of a significance that can't be overstated. Yes, Matt. You know, one way that's helpful to think about all that you're talking about and what, what we see in Job and something that we see for sure nowadays is uh, in terms of justification. Justification by victimization um, is, not, uh, is not salvific. Right. We're placing our, um, our, our bets on uh, our victimization, our story. And some of these, some of these wounds are really real and, and unfortunate. You know, abuse as a child, things like that, but it's so um, unhelpful in the long run to dwell on that, to find our um, our salvation, as it were, in mm-hmm. that. Um, and you know, that's exactly the place those wounds uh, worth you know, justification by uh, grace need to touch. Right. Um, so I don't know. I have any real point or, or question as much as it might be helpful to think about it in terms of. Justification. Right. No, I think it's right. Right. No, I think it's exactly right. And and I'm going to think of a really good example of that on the drive home. But no, I mean that that I mean, that immediately resonates with me though because because I think there is a, a real tendency to think that and, and kind of kind of what was said in the Christianity Christianity Today piece. There's a real tendency to think that the, the people who are honest are deserving, therefore, of some sort of, of of power, not not based on their education, not based on their experience or even their talents. But on their willingness to confess, uh, and um, and that I mean, and that is problematic. Even I think you probably even see that too in these, um, certainly in, in within within Christianity, where where, where people uh, in positions of power have um, have maybe done something pretty pretty inappropriate for a person in their position of power, and the fact that they've come clean is enough to justify them like staying right in their position and keep not that they should be banished to you know the the, the you know, worst part of wherever, but that well, they they got that out, they cleared it air the air, so everything's everything's right back, you know, right back. I don't know if um, I don't know if anybody watching basketball yesterday, if Greg Anthony, who was uh, arrested in a prostitution sting Friday night, the CBS announcer. Um, I don't. I, I'm assuming he did not call the game yesterday afternoon that he was scheduled to call. But you often wonder in a case like that. I mean, here's a guy who gets. And again, we can talk about you know what's appropriate or inappropriate. Should he be judged on that or in terms of his job? But you know, you know, there is a tendency for, for somebody to go in front of a camera saying, I'm sorry, yes, I did this thing. I'm sorry to those I've offended who might possibly be bothered by this thing I've done. And that's that. And you know, you know, that's it. And, and so yeah, that, there's a, there is a tendency to, to grant way too much authority there um, because of this, this willingness to kind of put something out there. And it, it's, certainly we know in Christ, that's not a death sentence. And yet, um, it is not what we often think it is, which is some sort of, you know, by putting it out there, it's some sort of past. Because, you know, we can forgive each other in, in all kinds of ways, but in terms of eliminating sin and wiping the slate clean, we can't do that. We're incapable of doing that. Um, it's kind of like another method of control, a control narrative of the story through um, vulnerability when 
That, and that's what that's what sets Christianity apart, and and that's where I, you know, these very often probably people who are on the same side of the aisle as I am theologically and politically who can be a little too judgmental about certain things, almost kind of back off in my response. You know, so I want to be judgmental of them and just be like, oh, you just all this stuff you're saying on the radio, it's just not nice. And, and I tend to think that, but then I also, you know, at least you're wrestling with the fact that whoever this is, whether it's a politician or a minister or a you know, a celebrity or athlete or whatever, this, this bad thing they've done, at least you're wrestling with the fact that it happened and that maybe they shouldn't be let off the hook independent of, like, spiritual repentance. Again, that's not, like, holding it over their head. You know, I, I, I hate the old, you know, so-and-so passed away, and then the second paragraph of the New York Times is, by the way, in 1962, they... dot, 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 dot. I don't like that. On the other hand, when it happened two weeks ago, I mean, I had a hard time watching Florida State play football this year. And um, because, and granted, I mean, if, you, if it's your job to call a football game, that, that's your job. You have to do that. And it can't be like, you know, accused rapist Jameis Winston just completed a 10-yard pass. I mean, you can't do that. On the other hand, it, you know, in the eyes of, of the sports world, that never happened because he was, he was honest about his flaws and the fact that he needed to do better at life, and so we're done. And yet there's just all this dirty stuff there, both in terms of pride and other things that, where, where the gospel, and I'm not saying what James Winston needs or doesn't need or what his coach needs or anybody else, but for, for a Christian who understands confession and absolution in its truest sense, we know there's something deeply wrong with that and there's a deep need, again, to use that language of vulnerability, there's this deep need for, for repentance and, and for forgiveness. And, and so that's, that's kind of what we're left with, I, I feel like. It would be interesting to see in, in these kind of confessionals and that sort of thing, James Winston, or, or even ourselves, <clears throat> what we how how it changes if there's no if there's no way for James Winston or us or whoever's the confessionist to receive any kind of feedback whatsoever. Right. But, but to go back to go out and, and to confess, but have have no sort of of, of feedback as to how that's taken or how it's you know, the affirmation from it or, or anything else as to where's you know would. Right. Would there be confessions? Right. Would there be? Because if you're ultimately, I mean, you can confess in a press conference that gets broadcast all over the world, but if, if it's not confessed, as Job does here before God, then the one, I mean, you know, and, and we, we trust that, that, that God has forgiven our sins, but the one audience that needed to hear you confess and repent, you know, when, the, when that, that's when there's that detachment a little bit, vertically speaking, because, because that, that, that that could trip over some really murky theological waters, but but when the when the repentance doesn't come before God, it's just an admission of guilt before friends and family. Then there's something missing there because you're again it's that 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 overwhelming verdict of vulnerability side to side, but there's none between you and God, and that's where where things become a little bit problematic. Any thoughts before we close out? Sure, please. That just makes me think of, as a culture maybe that is one area, we just need to be real careful on social media 
because it's so easy to justify ourselves to our friends and family over the internet for whatever it is we're feeling. Um, but like you said, if it's if you're, it, it gives you a way out, I guess. It gives you a an ex you get your feelings and emotions, whatever it is, your your confession out there, but you never do get in that quiet place before God. And I think that is one of the you know, attention that is there with all of the stuff that's available to us now as far as communication, that we're not communicating with God, we're communicating with everyone else but, but Him. Well, you know, and you can argue, I mean, I think you could make the point, too, that and as Christians, we believe that when we when we speak to God, that our prayers are heard, and, and I, I believe that it's not a prayer into some sort of hollow vacuum, in the hopes that God's way on the other end of the galaxy and He hears it, um, like putting your money through the drive-through at the you know at the uh, at the bank, that it's going to just shoot through somewhere and somebody's going to pick it up. But that's almost what you're doing, certainly in a, in a technological sense, when you post you know if you've got a public Twitter feed or a public Facebook account, when you just kind of post your thoughts on the day then just whoever sees it and maybe somebody gets it and you vent it. And yet the, the deepest need we have remains, you know, remains there. And, and you, know, you can see that, um, again, in, in the initial offing, like with Job, makes perfect sense. I mean, it's completely understandable, but the more it goes on, the more it continues absent the repentance and the deep forgiveness uh, of God in Christ, then it... Uh, it tends, tends to run in circles. Um, so, didn't mean to leave that on kind of a deep, ambiguous motion, but there we go. Um, thanks for coming. A quick prayer before we go. Heavenly Father, um, I pray that in all things we would um, see in, in you the, the, the deep love and mercy of Jesus and, and know that our sins are forgiven, that we would have the, the, um, the power by your grace to, to repent and, um, and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.